0: All right, so we've got the, the kind of the map again, or from last time, uh, just going through the major religions in the world. And so uh, this time we're on to Shinto, which is listed about there, about halfway down with 120 million or so followers. Again, it's a little hard. Uh, we've been seeing this in the Eastern religions. It's a little hard sometimes because of the mixing uh, various religions to necessarily pinpoint an accurate figure. Um, so that's, that's an approximation of 121, almost 22 million. So it's number nine on the list if you're counting uh, from the top down. Uh, in its most basic form, Shinto is a uh, fervent religious Japanese patriotism, according to Lewis Hoff in his World Religions book, but it may include ancestor worship, animism, and a worshipful attitude toward the beauties of their land, including its mountains. We're gonna see more about that as we look at it. Uh, Japan actually means origin of the sun or land of the rising sun. And so you, you know the, the, their flag is a sun, a red sun on a white background. Okay, now to understand their religion, we're going to have to go back to their mythology, their their creation myths. So that's what we're going to start with. They they, they have kind of a strange story about how everything began. Um, The main source for this is called the Kojiki. And as always, I apologize if I'm pronouncing any of these things wrong. Um, It's a little difficult for me um, figuring out all these words in the other languages. But that's the best. Kojiki. Uh, it means the chronicles of ancient events, and this was compiled in the seventh and eighth centuries AD in response to mostly Buddhism's influence in Japan. So they put together this this these writings, and in these writings, there's a section called the Age of the Gods, and that lays out their mythology of supposedly how everything came to be. So that's where this is from, the Kojiki, uh, the Japanese writings. Uh, The Age of the Gods. So here's, here's basically how it starts. According to these works, the world began in primordial chaos, out of which arose a succession of seven generations of gods, and a translation from the Kojiki tells of the birth of these gods called Kami, or Kami, Kami, I think is probably better. Uh, so here's, here's what it says in their writings. At the beginning of heaven and earth, there came into existence in the plane of high heaven the heavenly center Lord Kami. Again, Kami's like spirit or God. Next, the Kami of high generative force, and then the Kami of divine generative force. Next, when the earth was young, not yet solid, they developed something like reed shoots from which the male Kami of excellent reed shoots, and then the heavenly eternal standing Kami emerged. Don't worry, there won't be a quiz on this later. Um, but all these, all these different gods are coming about. The above five kami are the heavenly kami of special standing. Uh, then, did I get to that? Oh yeah, here we go. Then there came into existence earth eternal standing kami, kami of abundant clouds field, male and female kami of clay, male and female kami of post, male and female kami of great door, kami of complete surface, and his spouse Kami of Awesomeness, Izanagi, now these are the ones we're going to focus on a little bit, Izanagi and his spouse Izanami. Okay, So basically, it's just a bunch of gods that came into existence out of something with no explanation for how anything was there. Uh, But but along come among these gods Izanagi and Izanami. Uh, Izanagi being the male and Izanami the female. Uh, The land is unformed and floated aimlessly like oil upon water, and Izanagi and Izanami are given the task of bringing order to the world. Izanami's urine, feces, and vomit become matter, earth, and ocean. Izanagi and Izanami create the islands of Japan. So this is how everything begins. It basically begins with gods, and it begins with the creation of Japan. Uh, So the heavenly kami at this time gave the heavenly jeweled spear to Izanagi and Izanami and instructed them to complete and solidify the land. So that's what this picture shows. That's supposed to be those two, Izanagi and Izanami, and here they are with the spear. Okay, they're standing on the floating bridge in heaven, lowering the spear and stirring it around, and as they lift the spear, the brine drips from the tip of the spear and it piles up and it forms an island. This island is called Onogoro, which is like the beginning island of Japan. Okay, in, so if you look at, here's a couple other depictions. They're on. They're usually on this bridge that's in heaven, and they're using this spear, and they're mixing it around. And what drips from the tip of the spear makes these islands. Again, the first one called Onogoro. And uh, there's some... There's some thought of where, you know, where supposedly it is. In Hyogo today, you can find the small island of Nushima, which is 4.6 kilometers south of Awaji Island. So kind of in the picture here of Japan, you're looking at this area. This would be Awaji right there. And then here's a close-up. And this is is Awaji close-up. And then there's a little island here called Nushima as well. So depending on who you ask, some some of their stories are that Awaji is that first island, the Onagoro that was first formed. Others say it might be this Nushima, the little little one at the end there. And on Nushima, there's kind of a well-known rock here um, that people come and visit. So that's the story. So basically, creation starts with gods and then Japan the first island of Japan, uh, comes about. Um, So wherever the island is, the story continues that Izanagi and Izanami um, build a palace, and in the palace they have a great column or pillar in the middle, and they walk around the pillar, and then when they come to each other around the pillar, they're married, they enter into relations, through their sexual union, they create many more islands. And so the story continues. Uh, Izanami gives birth to eight islands, Awaji, Shikoku, Oki, Kyushu, Iki, Tsushima, Sado, and Honshu, forming the Japanese archipelago. These eight islands were the lands ruled by the ancient Japanese. Among them, Honshu, Shikoku, and Kyushu make up three of the four main islands of modern Japan, and, and so on. So we go through this. These islands are all birthed, and then basically... It continue, the process continues at the end. It says, Izanami later birthed several smaller islands, many of them in the inland sea, completing the archipelago. Okay, so this is basically when that, that part is completed. All of the islands of Japan are completed. The world is ready to be inhabited, so they also create the gods of nature, like the wind god, the tree gods, mountains, plains, human beings as well. But then tragedy strikes. Izanami gives birth to a kami, again kami meaning spirit or god, a kami of fire, Kagutsuchi. So as she gives birth to this fire god, she basically gets burned and killed. So she dies giving birth to the fire god. She ends up in the underworld and her husband Izanagi cries The goddess of spring water is formed from his tears. He buries Izanami. He beheads the fire god who caused her death. Eight more gods come from the drops of blood from his sword. And another eight from the fire god's body. So through all this, more more gods are coming into existence. But Izanagi is struck with grief, and he wants to go find Izanami. He goes to the underworld, which is called Yomi, and he goes there to find her. So here's the story. Izanagi, hoping to meet again with his spouse, he goes after her to the land of Hades, or they call it Yomi. And when Izanami came out to greet him, he couldn't see her, really. He could see kind of that she was there, but he couldn't see her in the, in the darkness. Uh, Izanagi said, "'Oh, my beloved, the land which you and I have been making has not yet been completed. Therefore, you must return to me.' And she replied, I greatly regret that you did not come here sooner for I have already partaken of the hearth of the land of Hades. That is to say she ate and once she's eaten of the food in Hades she can't leave. Uh, but she says let me discuss with the kami of Hades about my desire to return but don't look at me. You must not look at me. And she was, But she was gone so long that Izanagi being impatient entered into the hall to look for her and the story goes he has some comb and he gets a tooth of the comb, and he makes a light out of it, and he shines the light, and he sees her, and she's a horrible sight, basically decomposing with maggots. So he freaks out, <laughs> he, he is afraid, he runs away, he says he's going to divorce her, she sends the, the, quote, hags of hell after him, and he flees out of the underwood. he puts a giant boulder there to block it, and she basically vows that she's going to kill a thousand of his human beings every day but he shouts back that he will make 1,500 more every day. So now he's back, and he didn't get his wife back. He's very sad after being in such a horrible place. was kind of a picture in the darkness uh, before he could see her. Uh, he, he runs back, and now he's got to purify himself after being to such a horrible place, seeing such horrible things. So he cleanses and exercises himself in a river, According to the Kojiki, this purification took place in the province of Hiyuga. And, well, while he does this, new gods are created from his clothes that he throws out. And as he washes himself, as he washes his left eye, there comes into existence the sun goddess, Amaterasu. And when he washes his right eye, the moon god, Tsukiyomi. And he washes his nose, uh, Susanoa, the god of storm and sea. And... uh, this continues. This myth is basically going to come into It's going to merge with history at some point here. So uh, we'll keep going with the storyline. So here's the. Here they are coming out of his tears. These various further kami, and then <clears throat> McDermott writes the following uh, summary: The sun goddess and her brother Susanoo then become the rulers of this world. She is the source of all life-giving power, food, agriculture, life, and order. He is rebellious, wild, and arrogant, and so causes much of the trouble we see around us. When he destroyed her rice fields and polluted her festival, she hid in a cave which plunged the world into darkness. Only when the kami produced a mirror and jewels, which are considered sacred objects of Shinto, was she persuaded to come out. Then she negotiated with her brother, and they agreed she would retain control over this world and he over the mysterious worlds of magic, demons, and astrology." Okay, Keep going in the line. She ends up having a grandson, Ninigi, and the grandson comes down to earth to rule Japan. He was given a sword, a mirror, and jewels, the ones that lured his grandmother out, and he falls in love there with the, quote, Blossom Princess. This is a really hard name to say. say. Konohana Sakuya. I don't know. (laughs) Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's probably very wrong, but... Anyway, he meets the Blossom Princess. He falls in love. Her father says, oh, but she must marry the older sister as well, the Rock Princess Iwanaga. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. So you got kind of a Leah Rachel thing going here, right? <laughs> it's like, well, you want to marry the one, you have to marry the other. So she has to marry the, he has to marry the other one, um, but he does not. And there's some consequences. So, Nanigi, however, takes only Konohana Sukuya, rejecting the less beautiful Iwanaga. Furious, the father, that's Oya Matsumi, reveals that only marrying both of his daughters would have assured Nanigi eternal happiness. Blossoms are beautiful but fleeting, whereas rocks may be dull to look at but last forever. Again, one being the blossom princess, one being the rock princess. Uh, Nanigi's refusal of Iwanaga means that he has forfeited his immortality for the ancient Japanese. This fateful choice explained why the emperors, who were considered living deities, had to die like ordinary mortals. Okay, uh, so Nanigi, he has children with a blossom princess. He has two sons. Okay, one's a fisherman, one's a warrior. Yamasachi Iko is the hunter Umasachi Iko is the fisherman. And one day the brothers decide to swap tools, try out, kinda of try out each other's profession, see how it goes. But Yamasachi Iko loses his brother's fishing hook. So the guy in the picture with the this one's the hunter, right, with the bow and arrow, this one's the fisher, and same thing over there. So he borrows the fishing instruments from him, but loses his all-important hook and can't find it. So he takes a boat to the palace of Wadatsumi, the god of the sea, and there Yamasachi Iko meets Toyotama, the daughter of the sea god. He meets Princess Toyotama, they fall in love, they get married, her father helps him find the hook, which he eventually gives back to his brother. And then they have a child. If you thought those names were hard, I don't know if you have that one on your paper. (laughs) Ugaya Fukiaizu. <laughs> yeah, they have the, they have that child <laughs> Ugaya Fukiaizu, and that means the one for whom the cormorant feather roof was not finished in time. <laughs> and it's, there's a story because it has to do with what happened. Basically, uh, Yama, Yamasachi Ito was building a hut for his wife to give birth inside, but he never was able to finish the roof, which was being made out of cormorant feathers. And as she's given birth, the princess begs him not to look, but he looks at her, and he sees her as the daughter of the sea turning into a great shark. I guess because he didn't finish the the roof. She flees back to the sea, leaving the baby behind, and the baby ends up being raised by her sister, Tamiyori. When the child reaches adulthood, the child marries that sister. And today, the Udo shrine... In the Miyazaki prefecture is said to be the birthplace of that child. Okay, um, so we're we're almost there <laughs> with the mythology story. So so Ugaya Fukiyazi and Tama, Tama, Tamayori have four sons, one of whom is named Jimu, the first human emperor of Japan. So this is where it's going to start mixing, or at least leading into um, the Japanese history, or at least what they say is their history. Uh, So the story goes as follows. When they grow up, the youngest son takes his brothers on a quest to conquer all of Japan. They head eastward from Hyuga, battling and defeating many enemies until they reach a place in what is now Nara. There, the youngest son establishes a government and declares himself Emperor Jimmu, the first ruler of Japan by divine right. Being descended from the sea god on his mother's side and the deities of the sky and mountain on his father's side, he is destined to rule over all the earth. He is the first emperor in the traditional order of succession, which claims an unbroken line of rule from Jimmu to the present 126th emperor. So Jimmu began his dynasty in 660 BC, and this is said to be the beginning of the Japanese ruling family, which supposedly, uh, which could be traced back to AD 720. So in other words, according to the Japanese, all Japanese emperors have descended from this person, Jimmu and then therefore ultimately from the sun goddess, Amaterasu. Okay, so their, their view is the emperor's divine. The emperor comes from the line of the gods. That's basically, and that's how they trace it back through their mythology. Uh, we should note that worship of these gods is different than how you and I might think of worship. Uh, Japanese people revere their kami, but not in the way that Christians worship Jesus. There's very little in the way of a personal relationship. The kami are regarded as much more distant and so devotion to them is reserved and formal. And there's also some variance in how they understand even what a kami is. Uh, kami, uh, Hopf writes that kami certainly refers to the deities of heaven and earth worshipped by the Japanese, but it can also refer to the spirit that is in humans, animals, trees, plants, seas, and mountains. Anything, person, or force that possessed superior power or was awesome in any way was described by the ancient Japanese as Kami. Although kami may be defined in these broad terms in mythology, it generally refers to gods or humans with godlike powers. And again, it means like spirit or God. All right, so that's the mythology. Any questions on that? So the one that turned into a shark, she just never came back? Yeah, she's just gone. Yeah. She's that had nothing to do with the living no because her sister raised the child yeah yeah because her sister ended up raising the child and marrying him so yeah, just gone yep Yeah, as far as I know yeah certainly in the line yeah do they view this as mythology or do they view it as a true creation account it's going to depend on the person so you have the, the different people some people just just kind of follow like rituals cultural right not necessarily taking this as a real account um but a lot of people do because if they really believe the emperor is divine, I mean, if they have that view that our emperor is divine, well, well how do you justify that? Well, this is how it comes from that. So. And, and, and this was recognized as, I mean, it was officially declared as we're about to go through the history of Japan. It was officially declared that the emperor was related to the kami, that, he, that he's a god, that he's divine. So that was their official position of the government. All right, so how does this look in terms of uh, history? So we'll trace through history, uh, kind of like we did with, um, with the last couple religions we've looked at. We'll go through the history then, and then at the end, take a look at, you know, well, wh- how, do we, how does this compare to what the Bible says, and what are some things that we might look at if we were to talk to somebody who believes this? Uh, but let's go through the history first, because it kind of shows how it developed, where it was, and where it's at now. So the history... Basically, of Japan starts in the 3rd century A.D. So this is much newer than a lot of the other religions we were looking at. I mean, we looked at Hinduism, and we were talking about like 1500 B.C. Uh, This is much uh, nearer um, to us. This is all A.D. years. So 3rd century A.D. seems to be when most scholars believe Japan's history actually began. And uh, this is at least when they began to keep records and to become known to nations around them. And kind of a, what did it look like before that, um, here's, here's what, they, what they write. Japanese worship probably consisted of a loosely organized, widely varying collection of practices. The myths allowed for a limitless number of gods, goddesses, spirits, ancestor worship, and various forms of animism. Shrines were established all over the Japanese islands for the worship of various kami. And shrines were built in individual homes for ancestor and kami worship. Amaterasu and Susanoa were probably the most popular gods. Beyond these very general statements, it is, very difficult, it is difficult to say anything more about Japanese worship in its prehistoric period. So that's basically what we know, not much about before that time, <clears throat> but it was kind of based on the myths, right? Their, their religion was based on the myths. Um, so the next big thing that happens, though, as we move forward in the timeline, we come to the 6th century, Buddhism gets introduced to Japan in about 552. That has a huge influence eventually. At first it doesn't. Uh, Buddhism's introduced and uh, the, the story's written that the emperor was given an image of Buddha and some of the Buddhist writings, but shortly after that, after he received them, a pestilence broke out in Japan. And then they were thinking, oh no, this is because we just got these new gods from this other place Maybe maybe our gods are mad, and so now we've had this pestilence break out, and so they, they destroyed the statue that they had been given and the temple that they had built out of fear that something was uh, happening uh, in retribution. So at first, Buddhism didn't take off, but then Buddhism would return and become a strong presence by the end of the sixth century. In uh, 592, Emperor Sushun was assassinated. He had supported Buddhism, building a number of temples but it became even more prominent after his demise. And so what's going to happen is Buddhism is actually going to become the national religion. And uh, let me see if I think I had a quote here. Nope, I guess I missed the quote. Yep, I don't have that one. All right. Well, I'll just read from my paper. So David Clark writes that the winning clan leader placed on the throne his Buddhist niece. So after the emperor died, a Buddhist niece is put on the throne, becoming the first empress of Japan. And she chose as her regent, her, uh, her, ne- her uh, cousin, Shotuku, who made Buddhism the national religion. Okay, so at this point, Buddhism becomes the national religion of Japan. So it, at first it took a while, but... It introduced around five hundred and fifty, but by the end of this of the sixth it's almost it 's basically become the uh, national religion it 's taken over uh, nonetheless, Shinto did still have the support of some powerful clans, so it wasn 't wiped out. it was just became much less prominent. The influence of Buddhism forced the Japanese to put their myths and rituals together and really define what Shinto was so that 's really when the term came about. <clears throat> it was forced because of Buddhism for the Japanese to actually Decide, well, what is Shintoism? What is their religion that they've been, you know, been having before Buddhism came? So they, they kind of worked that through. They put it together. And that's where we talked about. They wrote at the beginning, we mentioned where we got these myths from. It was from the Kojiki. That was one of the results is they had to put that together. And then they had to define what is Shintoism really. And the term came about in the sixth century. It's actually from the Chinese words Shen and Tao. Remember Tao from Taoism, Taoism. It means Way. Shen Dao basically means the way of the gods. So that's what they call it. Shinto is Shen Dao, the way of the gods. Or the Japanese call it Kami no Michi, the way of the gods in Japanese. The empress then died. And in the late 7th century... Emperors put Shinto on parallel level with Buddhism, so Shintoism kind of got popular and it moved up and it was, was equated because again you know we 've seen this we saw this with China that it depends on who 's the emperor, who is the emperor 's ear, what he believes, depending on who 's leading one of these religions might kind of go up, and the other one goes down in popularity and So the same thing was happening here. Buddhism had really taken over in the sixth century in the seventh it started to shift a little bit more uh, back in the other direction to the point of essentially Uh, Parallel status in the 7th century. Uh, We come to the 8th century then. Uh, Buddhism grows with schools and temples. This is the Nara period where the capital was in Nara, uh, southwest of Tokyo. The Buddhists started six different schools of philosophy. They built temples around Nara and the nation was moving toward feudalism in terms of the governance. There was also an in of cultural influence from China along with Buddhism. So we had uh, lots of influence from China coming in. Artistic influence, uh, philosophical influence, food, dress, and actually a system of writing. The system of writing came from China. Um, Hopf notes this. Prior to this per- period, the Japanese had no written language. They subsequently adopted the Chinese script and many other elements of Chinese culture. Japan was organized and governed by a feudal system during this era, and Confucian ethics were therefore welcomed, again, coming from China. Ancestor worship has, had always been practiced in Japan, and thus the Confucian and Taoist elements that emphasized filial piety were readily accepted. The Chinese art, particularly those connected to Buddhist ritual, were also adopted. So there was just this inpouring of influence coming from China. And while all this is happening, what's going to happen is... The, the Buddhism and the Shinto are really going to start to mix. That's how they're going to sort of come to peace. So instead of battling against each other, they're going to start, start mixing uh, toward each other. So the Buddhists developed this idea called Hanji Suijaku, which in English would be basically true nature, comma, trace manifestation. And what it basically says is that they could take the idea of this other religion, in this case Shinto, and they say that, well, the Shinto kami are these traces, they call them manifest traces, of Buddhist gods. So they take the Shinto idea and say, well, this is, this is really just a manifestation of our gods. That's who these are. And in that way, they can kind of embrace the ideas of Shinto into the ideas of Buddhism. And Molloy writes, he summarizes it here, Buddhist monks viewed Shinto kami simply as different forms of Mahayana Buddha's bodhisattvas, and other heavenly beings. And they preached that the Buddhist deities were already being worshipped in Japan under Shinto names. Okay, so that allows them to start mixing. There gradually developed an identification between the various Shinto kami and the Buddhist deities. Little by little, the boundaries between the two religions were obliterated. The Shinto sanctuaries also came to serve Buddhist priests. The rituals performed in these sanctuaries made little distinction between the two religions. Buddhist architectural elements were added to Shinto temples. Generally, Japanese life began to be divided into two spheres. The concerns of day to day, day to day, it should say, with another hyphen, day to day life became the domain of the Shinto side of the religion, and concerns for the afterlife were served by the Buddhists. Thus, a traditional citizen of Japan might be said to have been born a Shintoist, but to die a Buddhist. For 10 centuries, Shinto and Buddhism lived side by side in Japan, each serving a special need of the people. So that's what it kind of shifted, where they each had more of their own area, and they could coexist um, together through this time. Okay. Shinto was often associated with agriculture, fertility, and birth, while Buddhism called on philosophy for philosophy. was called on for philosophy, helped with serious sickness, funerals, and the afterlife. The accommodation was signaled in various ways. Shinto shrines frequently contained a Buddhist place of worship or had some Buddhist rites for the kami, while the Buddhist temples often had a Shinto shrine on their grounds. Okay. <clears throat> so that's, uh, that's as they start to mix together these two religions. Okay, so we see Buddhism and Shinto start to mix at the bottom there, and then um, Buddhism starts to take over, so they blend, but Buddhism really becomes more of the focus, and then people in their day-to-day are doing the Shinto, people at home are doing the Shinto, uh, but Buddhism uh, becomes more popular. Um, There were attempts to revitalize and popularize Shinto over the centuries, but most of them didn't take so they merged, and Buddhism was really starting to take over more, even though they were coexisting. 12th century AD, Kamakura period. Feudalism was established in Japan, and so feudalism is one of the hallmarks of this century. And then another one is the samurai. So if you've probably seen movies, heard about samurai. A um, couple of ter- things I want to mention. Somebody asked last week, what's feudalism? Uh, it's hard to describe, but here's one, here's a, one definition I found. Feudalism is a system in which people were given land and protection by people of higher rank, and they worked and fought for them in return. So basically, you could be given land if you swore loyalty and service to the landlord. And the result is a system that divided up power among wealthy landlords and warlords rather than a central leader, a central government, a central monarch. Uh, So you get this like different kingdoms. That's like we talked about in, in China where you had all these warring factions that were all fighting for power. That's what happened when they were into feudalism. So you can think of it as less centralized. It's all these different groups fighting amongst themselves for power. The samurai were feudal knights who hired themselves out as bodyguards or mercenaries. And here's a picture of some samurai gear, what their outfits might look like. The upper class of society were trained in a school of Confucianism. So there's the Chinese influence. A leader from this school combined Shinto with Confucianism and developed the warrior's code called Bushido, the way of the fighting knight. So this is the the code for a samurai, Bushido. Here's what their code entailed. The samurai must be loyal to his master in the feudal hierarchy. The samurai must be courageous in life, battle, and in his willingness to die for his master. The samurai must, above all, be honorable. Death is better than dishonor, and he should take his own life rather than be dishonored. The samurai must be polite to his master and those in authority, like a good Confucian. The samurai is to be a gentleman. He is to be benevolent, to right wrongs, and to bring justice to the victims of injustice. Okay, so that's the code for the samurai uh, during this time, their honor code. In 1185, the samurai class grew powerful enough to defeat the order and establish a new capital in Kamakura. That's why this is called the Kamakura period. And this led to a revival of Shinto. So Shinto starts to revive a little bit after it was falling away. In the late 1200s, the devotees of the Yuiichi School of Shinto sought to re-establish the superiority and independence of Shinto. They aspired to a purified Shinto, free of Buddhist and other influences. This pure Shinto included not only the shrine system with its various local activities, but also the very important sense of national unity and identity derived from convictions about the divine origin of the imperial line and the spiritual uniqueness of Japan in the world. So they went back to Shinto. And that's one of the things. The Shinto really embraces the specialness of Japan, right? The divine, uh, the divine line of the emperor, the creation of Japan as the special first land. And so there's a lot of uh, national pride that goes with that too, right? And that's what they're moving toward. So they're moving toward, toward like separating from Buddhism, more of a, of a national pride here. Uh, interestingly, they sought to absorb some Buddhist ideas, so they kind of went backwards. And they said, well, we could do that, that idea too. And they started viewing Buddhist deities as manifest traces of their kami. So they went the other way. They recognized many buddhas and bodhisattvas as the revelation of the kamis to the Indian and Chinese people. We come into the 17th century. Under the Tokugawa regime, Japan was led by... Uh, tough-minded military leaders, and they sought to isolate the nation from outside influences. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, that means, again, it's going to come into Japan, Japan wants to separate itself from the influences of China, of the other nations, and they're going to go inward. They're going to be looking at the religion that came from Japan. They're going to have the pride in the nation. And so they're seeking to isolate from the outside. They embrace the Shinto ideas, the national pride, the divine emperor, And this shifts the government against Buddhism, against any religion that's coming from outside of Japan, in favor of Shintoism. Uh, But this government brought unity and relative peace for 250 years. So they embraced Shinto, they brought some peace and unity for a while. And then we head toward the 19th century. So we're getting pretty close to modern. Uh, The Meiji Restoration started in 1868 and went into the uh, into 1912 the Meiji restoration what happened the, the previous regime fell the feudal system began to collapse and the imperial line came back so it had been again the feudalism right with all the different little groups but now it goes back to a more centralized government under the emperor his name was Meiji and uh, Japan during Meiji's reign opened up to the west and changed from a dictatorship to a western style republic under the emperor And then he brought in all these people from the West to start advising, start helping them. So now suddenly they're opening up to influence from the West. Whereas previously they were kind of isolating themselves from everything. He imported experts from the West to help remodel the government, the military, the education. So what did the religion look like at that point in Japan? Malloy writes... Shinto was forced to separate from Buddhism and places of worship had to decide whether to declare themselves Shinto or Buddhist. For a short time, Buddhism even suffered persecution as Japan's leaders emphasized the divine origins of the emperor and began to tie Shinto to a growing spirit of nationalism. Okay, the national religion basically became what they called State Shinto. So they're opening up to the West, but they're holding on to this still, the, the pride of the nation. So state Shinto, what does that mean? It basically means the state is declaring this to be the religion. In 1870, the government declared that the kami had founded the nation. So state and religion were united. So this was to your question, Scott, when you were asking about, you know, do they view this as, do they view the mythology as reality? When 1870, they declared that to officially be true. Um, So uh, that's one thing. They started a department of religion for other religions. And then in 1880s, they established state Shinto, but they called it non-religious. So that's the interesting thing. It's like the state religion, but they call it not a religion. It's a little bit confusing. McDermott explains, the idea was that Shinto was from the divine realm directly, while all other religions were made up by men. So in this sense, religion became the word for man-made philosophy. So they're kind of like, well, it's what we would call the state religion, but they don't really call it a religion. They say everything else is the religion. Schools taught that the emperor's family was of divine origin, that the Japanese people were of uniquely divine character. This increased the sense of nationalism. Okay, the, uh, the constitution that declared uh, Shinto to be the state religion, uh, what it, the result of that was that there was, it was state-supported Shinto that basically consisted of patriotic rituals at certain shrines. Uh, in addition, those who wished could develop Shinto sects which would be supported by their adherents. Uh, Shinto could be carried on in every home around simple domestic shrines. Beyond these forms of Shinto, any other religion, Buddhism, Christianity, and so on, was free to exist in Japan, but only the patriotic rituals of the state shrines would receive financial support from the government. So they supported their state Shinto. Everything else could exist, but they weren't, it wasn't supported by the government. The state took over support for 110,000 Shinto shrines, 16,000 Shinto priests, and each shrine was dedicated to a local deity, hero, or event. And visitors come to the shrines to contemplate the importance of that hero, deity, or event, to pray and to make offerings. One such shrine is the Grand Shrine in Itha. Here's a picture of that. Okay, so people come here and they make offerings. They they pray to these uh, to the gods. Um, this one is one of the well known ones. That's why it's called the Grand Shrine. On the left is a, is a Japanese style archway called a torii or torii. I'm not sure. T o r i i. And this is this is so associated with Shinto now that that's kind of become a symbol for Shinto. Just that that's that almost looks like a like a Greek letter pi, <laughs> almost like like. I'm a math person, so I think of that. Uh, Okay, so the point, what did state Shinto do? It deepened patriotism. It deepened loyalty to the nation among the people, and it became an instrument of support for the military. It was particularly supportive of the Japanese war effort during World War II. Without state support, the more religious forms of Shinto separated and found private support, and many groups formed. They made basically three Major uh, sects, three categories, came up of a what they would call more religious uh, Shinto. One is mountain worshippers. Mountain worshippers. I think we mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, basically, people who follow this form of Shinto go on seasonal pilgrimages. They climb the mountains and they worship nature, especially the mountains, and live ascetically for a time. So mountain worshippers, that's one group. A second group is faith healers. This comes out of the shamanistic practices of Japanese peasants. They're into shamanism, ecstatic dance, and faith healing. One group, called the Tenrikyo, is often called the Christian Science of Japan. And then the third group, pure Shinto. Whereas the state Shinto left behind much of the religious mythology and ritual, these groups held on to those things and emphasized them. They emphasize purification of the body through fasting, breath control, bathing, chanting, and many other devices similar to yoga in Hinduism. And most people think that the the Japanese are very big on purification, clean, cleansing yourself. And they think that goes all the way back to that Izanagi, Izanumi story in the myth where he has to clean himself and he comes in and he washes himself after what happened. So... uh, most people think that that's sort of carried over into the culture, where there's this whole, whole idea of cleansing and cleaning uh, that they're very into. And then a fourth area, I don't know if we would put it under the same thing necessarily, or we could separate it, but there, then there's domestic Shinto. okay? And domestic Shinto is basically what takes place in the homes every day for the people of Japan probably the most common thing is just like what do they do within their own home so we call it domestic shinto and what happens is most families have one of these in their house a kamidana and it's basically a shrine in their home okay it's a shrine to it's called a kamidana means god shelf it's your shelf for god for the god or or spirit shelf in these things they have statues of gods religious symbols names of ancestors Items that they might buy at a major shrine and bring home and put in there, or anything else that they might consider sacred. So it's it's kind of like the comparison some of the books give is kind of like somebody's uh, mantle, their fireplace, like what you might put up on your fireplace. You have all these items that mean something to you, or somebody else, Some other comparison was like the dashboard of your car. Some people put all these all these significant things on the dashboard of their car. Um, so it doesn't have to even be what you would think of as maybe. Religious things, it could even be just... Um, one, one book gave the example of like the shoes of someone who is nice to you at some point. So it's like things that bring up good thoughts or good associations or that you might think of as good luck and then also religious stuff as well about gods and ancestors. So whatever, whatever meaningful objects or charms they want, they put it inside this kamidana, which is supposed to be on the highest shelf of your room and it's got, uh, it's got the miniature house it's kind of like, right? There's a house there. And then there's usually vases, bowls, candle holders, mirrors. And you make offerings like water, salt, rice, sake to be offered to the kami. Many houses also have a Buddhist shrine, a Butsudan for worship of Buddhist deities. So they'll often have both. So there again, there's the combination of the two religions. So what is it, well, how does that separate... On special occasions like holidays, weddings, or anniversaries, more elaborate ceremonies may be held at the Kamidana, more elaborate than just the daily worship. However, if the occasion is decidedly religious, a funeral, for example, it is not to the Shinto deities or priest that the Japanese family turns, but to the Buddhist priest. Shinto is for this life, but Buddhist for the life beyond Buddhism. So there's that separation. It's, It's become... Largely separated, Shinto day-to-day worship. Want things to go well. Want to have a good day. Want you know good things to go well. You're you're seeking blessings. You want your ancestors to bless you with good things. But if it's a life or death kind of thing, afterlife funeral, then they turn toward Buddhism. Okay, back to our timeline. Uh, 19th century. So state Shinto's in place. Um, Protestantism is actually introduced for the first time, 19th century. Roman Catholicism is reintroduced. And um, we're heading toward World War II at this point. So World War II. Clark writes, the set of values and ideals of Shintoism serve to affirm the imperial way. To this non-religious use of Shinto, the government wedded Confucian ideals, such as loyalty and filial piety, as well as samurai values like self-discipline. The nationalists used these notions of sacred nationalism and a stated desire to bring the whole world under one roof to support Japan's involvement in World War II. So Shinto priests blessed planes. They blessed uh, kamikaze pilots. By the way, that term, you notice kamikaze has kami in it which is their god or their spirit, right? And then kaze is wind. It actually means divine wind or heavenly wind. That's what kamikaze means. And the name comes from a 16th century legend of a heavenly wind that the gods sent to sink a Mongol emperor's fleet. So that's what it's named after. Kamikaze, Kamikaze is heavenly wind. Um, pilots would volunteer for such missions in World War II, going through a ceremony beforehand, drinking sake, eating rice, and receiving medals and a sword before they went out, and <coughs> they were blessed by the Shinto priests. Um, the, the, you know, historically, though, you know, you Shinto certainly they were able to use it well to drum up this idea, the pride in the nation, and, and bringing order and, and all of that. But you know, historians do point out that. Most of the Buddhists in Japan were supportive of the war as well. So, you know, some people kind of pin- point to Shinto, blame it on Shinto, and others say, well, kind of all the religions that were there, they were all supporting it, um, so it's not specifically necessarily Shinto. Um, but it, was, it certainly allowed them, um, when they're combining those ideas of the samurai, Confucianism, and Shinto, um, it, it really builds up on this national pride and uh, bringing order to the world becomes their idea, becomes their goal. State Shinto ended in 1945 when the occupying uh, American forces directed the emperor to abolish state support. In 46, the emperor was forced to admit he's not divine. Um, so that was kind of the end of state Shintoism. Um, now, what's going on now? Shinto continues to thrive in Japan in the religious sects as well as the domestic Shinto. There are different views on it, so it depends on the people. Uh, To some Japanese, it is a set of myths and rituals that remind them of the special origin of their nation. They are occasionally reminded of these myths and rituals on national holidays or visits to a national shrine. Religion, in terms of more regular worship and a concern for the future life, is likely to be Buddhism. To those who are members of specific Shinto sects, Shinto may be related to faith healing, ascetic practices, or purification of the body... To many rural families, Shinto includes daily worship that's carried out in the home at the Kamidana and contains elements of ancestor worship and animism. So it's kind of different things to different people. But, but all, that, all that day-to-day uh, continues in the home. Shinto is primarily concerned with being in harmony with nature. As Molloy puts it, the heart of Shinto is a sensitivity to the mysterious powers of nature. There isn't much in the way of doctrine or morality. He writes, there's, there's no moralistic God who gives commands or judges a person, nor is there a sense of original sin or any basic sinful tendency. Instead, human beings are fundamentally good. The body is good, and this earthly life is good. Shinto worships fertility and new life and tends to turn its focus away from death, which is thought of as the opposite of life and growth. And that's why when death comes around, they're looking to Buddhism, more than Shinto. McDermott writes, there is a, the sense in Shinto that the cosmos is disordered and must be brought into order. This is done by participation in Shinto ritual. Just as the sun goddess brought order to this world by her descendant, the emperor, devotees are to help bring order by their joining Shinto rites and ceremonies. This requires communion and communicating with the kami, which takes place at a Shinto shrine. So their goal, they, they have to bring order And that kind of goes into what the goal of being in World War II was, to bring order, right, bring order to the world. All right, so they have these, so at these shrines, if you go to a public shrine, there's priests in those shrines. Uh, They can do these purification rituals, prayers, and they they supposedly communicate with the kami that control different forces of nature. Um, Then for regular folks, not the priests, Shinto worships mostly at home, as we talked about, at the Kamidanas that they have. They purify, uh, they come and they pray, they meditate. Um, Here's one description. Each morning the rice and water are changed, and I pray at the altar by bowing twice, clapping my hands twice, and bowing again. I always pray that my family will have a good and safe day. So they're making offerings every day to these gods at their little shelf uh, for the day in front of them. Purity is a big thing, as we mentioned. According to Shinto, we must keep our bodies' houses and clothes clean and bright, and when they become dirty or contaminated, we must wash them, get rid of the dirt, and purify them with blessings. In Japan, washing, sweeping, cleaning, seen everywhere daily, have religious implications. Uh, One's character must be unstained, too, and human relations must be kept healthy. Similarly, the human character must have sincerity. It must be pure. Without egotism committed, human beings conserve and restore their purity by fulfilling all obligations, repaying debts, and apologizing for misdeeds. All right, so that's pretty much the summary of where, where, what it looks like, where, what Shintoism has become in Japan. Here's a breakdown again. These are hard to estimate sometimes because, again, you've got people that are Doing Buddhism and Shintoism, uh, but here's a study from the Agency for Cultural Affairs that estimates 89 million Shinto, so 49 percent, about half the population, and about half Buddhist, and then there's a few Christians, not a lot, one percent in Japan, and seven million other. Now that's kind of notoriously a hard place to go, like be a missionary. You know, I've. I've seen where some churches where they have these missionaries going to Japan and just the it's a really hard ministry there because there's so so few Christians and yeah it's 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 a very small percentage. Alright so the last part then the last thing is just like some comparison. So let's put this together uh, with what the Bible teaches, right? How does how does Shinto compare just overview broadly with Christianity? What what are the ultimate concerns? What's the ultimate problem? Uh, what, what does Shinto say? What does Christianity say? And for the Buddhism part, we talked about that two weeks ago. So you could look up Dennis's class to answer Buddhists. But let's look at Shinto. So the ultimate concern, you should have all of these. I left this part pretty pretty uh, written out in your notes. So the ultimate concern in Shinto is harmony with nature, which is controlled by these kami. In Christianity, the ultimate concern is freedom from sin, guilt, and the devil. And from God's just wrath for our sin. Reality, according to Shinto, they believe in different kinds of kami, ancestors, nature, gods of nature, souls of dead emperors and heroes. They can become kami. Uh, They believe that human nature is basically good because we are potential kami. And then the world is real but permeated with kami. We believe that man is creaturely and fallen with a sin nature that God created a real physical universe and God is personal and triune. The basic human problem, according to Shinto, is pollution and alienation from the rhythms of nature. Basic human problem is actually sin, right? Uh, The solution, according to Shinto, is Shinto rituals which bring order and harmony to the chaos. And the Bible says the solution is Christ. Divine accomplishment is salvation through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Okay, so what about? So, if you encounter somebody who believes in these things, you know, what are some tips for witnessing to a Shintoist? Okay, unsurprisingly, a major issue will usually have, have to do with, with uh, the exclusivity that we claim in the gospel, right? There's no other way. Because, again, you see this, there was an inclination to combine religions, and, and there's a lot of that in the, in the Eastern uh, thought we see. So, that's a hang up for a lot of people who believe in these things. They're like, well, they don't like that idea that there's only one way. And honestly, that's a hang-up in America too, right? I mean, it's, it's not just, not just in, the, in the East, Far East. So a major issue is the exclusivity. Japanese tend to be syncretistic. They want to combine things. They want to absorb, put it together. Um, Clark points out that for many Japanese, the real religion actually ends up being secular pride and achievement and materialism. He says, Shinto is a deep root that sustains certain basic cultural customs and social patterns. It overlays a basically secular life orientation, but the real heart for many is participation in the business of business. That's huge in Japan. The strongest personal religion is secular materialism. And then they recommend, recognize that Japanese people also communicate differently than we may be used to. They are deliberately subtle, especially when discussing matters with those who are above them on the social ladder. Most will hint delicately at important but unpleasant facts rather than say them right out loud. Wordless agreements and unspoken understandings fill Japanese language. So just how they communicate and their willingness to open up about certain things is is different uh, than us here. So you have to be aware of that. So Clark suggests focusing on several issues. So here are some things we could focus on talking to a Shintoist, the one true creator, God, right? The Shinto believes in many kami, but even among uh, Shintoists, they view the kami dramatically differently. We must make it clear that God is not a kami, but he is the God, the creator. He is outside of the creation. He is personal and triune. So rather than their view of all these different gods... That we see and that are really part of the creation. God is outside of the creation. He's created everything, and there's only one. Um, so, some passages here I've suggested you could take a look at uh, Romans one. Uh, Romans one talks about worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Right? That's what they're doing, or they're even worshiping fake creations that they've imagined in their minds. Um, And then some other passages about God being one, right? Deuteronomy 4.35 To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And 2 Samuel 7 says, There is none like you. There is no God besides you. Psalm 86.10 You alone are God. And then... Acts 17 is a good place to go. Um, actually, several several apologists talking about how to approach a Shinto recommend basically approaching as per Acts 17. Um, so why don't you turn there? Let's just look at Acts 17. So Acts 17, Paul at the Areopagus, and he basically talks about how they have this altar with the inscription to the unknown God, right? Uh, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And then starting in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything First of all, that God doesn't need us. God isn't like these, these idols, right? All these things. So, just picturing what, what the Shinto person is doing, right? And, and what, their, what their myths are, um, this is declaring who the true God is, right? And what he did. And he created everything. He doesn't need anything from us, he, he's, he created everything. He's outside of it and, and just basically lays out um, creation here. Um, and we ought not to think that he 's like these things right he 's not something formed out of the image and the imagination of us, and he causes us to repent, so then it gets you toward, to the gospel. right what, what, what are we called to do? We have to know God. First uh, Timothy two: five there is one God, there 's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, So that's one thing. Focus on the one true creator God, not these these mini kami that are in everything, the one God who's sovereign over everything, not these mini gods that have their little areas of influence over nature. Purity. The Japanese are big on purity. We've mentioned this several times as we went through. Uh, They basically believe they have to be purified in order to go into the presence of the kami. Um, so they, so in the, in the home shrines, they have to do this washing before they come to that altar. In the public shrines, if they go there, the priests have to go through these rituals to be purified before they can then communicate with their gods. So they have this idea that you have to be purified in order to be in the presence of their gods. And so this is a good, good thing we can build from, right? Because we can talk about God's holiness and our need for righteousness to be in his presence, right? That, that it's impurity, <coughs> excuse me, it's impurity, it's our sin that separates us from God. So we can work with that idea of having to be, <coughs> excuse me, having to be pure to, to be in God's presence. But the solution is not a ritual, right? They say the solution is to go through this ritual to become purified. We know that the solution is a transformation, right? We have to be transformed uh, by Christ, we have to be made righteous and given new hearts, and that only comes through Jesus. And then, if we're covered in his righteousness, we can come to God, right? We can be in God's presence. We will be with God. <clears throat> um, so, we can go through some passages there about, um, you know, I've mentioned uh, Genesis 15:6 about Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5:21. Uh, in Christ, right, that's how we become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we get this righteousness so we can come to God? Well, we have to get it through Christ. It has to be his. Uh, Hebrews 12, 14 talks about holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there is this need to be pure, to be holy, to be righteous, in order to to be with God, right? So they, they have an understanding of that concept of being pure, communicate to their gods, we can use that to talk about uh, coming to God. Uh, And then the next idea they mention here, serve God, not self. Because if you really look at the idea when you're running around worshiping these various gods to get something out of them, you're using your gods for yourself, right? It's about personal gain. Why am I worshiping this one? Because I want to get that out of him. Now I'm worshiping that one. Why? Because I want that. So it's really self-centered. It's, it's worshiping because you want to get something for your benefit. And then if it doesn't work, you go to some other god. And you go ask that one, right? You, so that's kind of a, the, the selfish idea. When you appease these gods, you're trying to get something out of it. Um, that's what they do. They worship in order to gain positive influence on their current life. From their ancestors or from the kami. So the heart behind that is selfish. As opposed to the Christian, where we, we can show them that we, don't, we, you know, we do receive blessings, obviously, from following Christ, but, but ultimately that's not the reason. We, we follow because we love him and we want to glorify him. So it's not self-centered as their view is. And then finally, uh, Clark notes that few Japanese have ikigai, I guess, purpose in life. Japanese people enjoy the security of a highly developed uh, social network and the joy of a brilliant cultural history history. But there is more to human existence, and few have this purpose in life, because again, a lot of it's in worldly pursuit: business, success, um, bringing honor to the family, those kinds of things. Um, but that's all through worldly pursuit. And we can, we can go through, for example, Ecclesiastes, and we can look at Ecclesiastes and how, uh, how you know, you go through anything. You could try anything you want. And you're never going to find satisfaction in it, right? No matter what. Things of the world will never bring it. You'll never find purpose and never find satisfaction ultimately. And so, Ecclesiastes would be a good place to talk about that um, and just how really we're not going to find meaning apart from being in right relationship with God. That's what it comes down to.